Part 67 of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume 1, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 67. Mary Bateman, commonly called the Yorkshire Witch, executed for murder. Part 4. The accusations founded upon such stories as these spread with wonderful rapidity. In Salem many were seized with fits, exhibited frightful contortions of their limbs and features, and became a fearful spectacle to the bystanders. They were asked to assign the cause of all this, and pretended to suppose that they saw some neighbour already solitary and afflicted, and on that account in ill odour with the townspeople, scowling upon, threatening, and tormenting them. Presently persons, specially gifted with the spectral sight, formed a class by themselves, and were sent about, at the public expense, from place to place, that they might see what no one else could see. The prisons were filled with the persons accused, and the utmost horror was entertained, as of a calamity which in such a degree had never before visited that part of the world. It happened, most unfortunately, that Baxter's Certainty of the World of Spirits had been published but the year before, and a number of copies had been sent out to New England. There seemed a strange coincidence and sympathy between vital Christianity in its most honourable sense, and the fear of the devil, who appeared to be come down unto them with great wrath. Mr. Increase Mather and Mr. Cotton Mather, his son, two clergymen of the highest reputation in the neighbourhood, by the solemnity and awe with which they treated the subject, and the earnestness and zeal which they displayed, gave a sanction to the lowest superstition and virulence of the ignorant. All the forms of justice were brought forward on this occasion. There was no lack of judges and grand juries and petty juries and executioners, and still less of prosecutors and witnesses. The first person that was hanged was on the 10th of June, five more on the 19th of July, five on the 19th of August, and eight on the 22nd of September. Multitudes confessed that they were witches, for this appeared the only way for the accused to save their lives. Husbands and children fell down on their knees, and implored their wives and mothers to own their guilt. Many were tortured by being tied neck and heels together, till they confessed whatever was suggested to them. It is remarkable, however, that not one persisted in her confession at the place of execution. The most interesting story that occurred in this affair was of Giles Corey and Martha his wife. The woman was tried on the ninth of September and hanged on the 22nd. In the interval on the 16th the husband was brought up for trial. He said he was not guilty, but being asked how he would be tried, he refused to go through the customary form, and say, By God and my country, he observed that, of all that had been tried, not one had as yet been pronounced not guilty, and he resolutely refused in that mode to undergo a trial. The judge directed, therefore, that according to the barbarous mode prescribed in the mother country, he should be laid on his back, and pressed to death with weights, gradually accumulated on the upper surface of his body, a proceeding which had never yet been resorted to by the English in North America. The man persisted in his resolution, and remained mute until he expired. The whole of this dreadful tragedy, said Mr. Goodwin, in his Lives of the Necromancers, was kept together by a thread. The spectre-seers, for a considerable time, prudently restricted their accusations to persons of ill repute, or otherwise of no consequences in the community. 
By and by, however, they lost sight of this caution, and pretended they saw the figures of some persons well-connected, and of unquestioned honour and reputation, engaged in acts of witchcraft. Immediately the whole fell through in a moment. The leading inhabitants presently saw how unsafe it would be to trust their reputations and their lives to the mercy of these profligate accusers. Of fifty-six bills of indictment that were offered to the grand jury on the 3rd of January, 1693, twenty-six only were found true bills, and thirty thrown out. Of the twenty-six bills that were found, three persons only were pronounced guilty by the petty jury, and these three received their pardon from the government. The prisons were thrown open. Fifty confessed witches, together with two hundred persons imprisoned on suspicion, were set at liberty, and no more accusations were heard of. The afflicted, as they were technically termed, recovered their health. The spectral sight was universally scouted, and men began to wonder how they could ever have been the victims of so horrible a delusion. Dr. Cook, in his General and Historical Review of Christianity, gives a melancholy description of the condemnation of a woman for witchcraft by a tribunal at Geneva, about the middle of the seventeenth century. An enumeration of some of the particulars of this case will afford a tolerably correct notion of the horrible cruelty which, in almost all proceedings against witchcraft, was practised in different parts of Europe. The woman was accused of having sent devils into two young women, and of having brought distempers upon several others, a charge sufficiently vague. To substantiate the accusation, the members of the tribunal availed themselves of an opinion that the devil imprinted certain marks upon his chosen disciples, the effect of which was that no pain could be produced by any application to the parts of the body where these marks were. They sent two surgeons to examine whether such marks could be discovered in the accused, who reported, not much to the credit of their medical skill and philosophy, that they had found a mark, and that, having thrust a needle into it the length of a finger, she had felt no pain, and that no blood had issued from the wound. Being brought to the bar, the prisoner denied the statement of the surgeons, upon which she was examined by three more, with whom were joined two physicians. It might have been expected that a body of men who had received a liberal education, and who must have had some acquaintance with the nature and construction of the human frame, would have presented a report showing the absurdity of the examination upon which they were employed. This, however, did not occur to them, for they gravely proceeded to thrust sharp instruments into the mark already mentioned, and into others which they thought they had found out. But as the miserable patient gave plain indication that she suffered from their operations, they were staggered, and satisfied themselves with declaring that there was something extraordinary in the marks, and that they were not perfectly like those commonly to be seen in witches. She was, notwithstanding, doomed to another investigation, the result of which was that after some barbarous experiments she felt no pain, and hence it was inferred that the marks were satanical. She had previously to this last inquiry been actually put to the rack, but she retained her fortitude and presence of mind, firmly maintaining that she had sent no devils into the persons whom it was alleged she had thus injured. She was again threatened with the torture, and from dread of undergoing it, made a confession, which it is painful to think was not at once discerned to be the raving of insanity. Similar proceedings were continued, and the conclusion of the whole was that she was condemned to be hanged and burned, for giving herself up to the devil, and for bewitching two girls. 
We conclude this article by the well-known case of the trial and acquittal of Lady Fowlis. Catherine Ross, Lady Fowlis, was the daughter of Ross of Balnagown, and second wife of the fifteenth Baron of Fowlis. The object of her crimes was to destroy her stepsons, Robert and Hector Monroe, with about thirty of their principal kinsmen, in order that her own children might succeed to the possessions of their father, which were considerable, and lay in the counties of Ross, Sutherland, and Inverness. Her brother, George Ross, seems to have been in league with her for the accomplishment of this diabolical purpose, and his wife, the young Lady Balnagown, was marked out as a victim, whose removal, with that of the rest of the family, might pave way for his marriage with the wife of Robert Monroe, the young laird. Their schemes were brought into active operation in the summer of 1577. Towards the end of that year, four of their accomplices, Agnes Roy, Christian Ross of Connorth, William McGillivorickdam, and Thomas McCain, Moore McCallan, McAvock, were arraigned in a justice court held in the Cathedral Kirk of Ross, convicted and burnt. One of the judges who presided at this trial was Robert Munro, the husband of the principal instigator of the crimes, and father of the family whose lives were practised against. Lady Fowlis, upon the discovery of her wickedness, fled into the county of Caithness, and after remaining there for the space of three-quarters of a year, her husband was persuaded to receive her home again, and she seems to have lived unmolested during the rest of the life of the old baron, and even the young laird, for whose destruction she had perseveringly laboured, made no exertion to bring her to justice. His brother Hector, however, on succeeding him, in 1590, procured a commission for the punishment of certain witches and sorcerers, which was understood to be aimed at his stepmother. But before he had time to act upon the power thus granted, she had influence enough to obtain a suspension of the commission, and it was not till July 1591 that she was brought to trial. The evidence mainly rested upon was that of the notoriety of the facts, and the confession of the accomplices, each count of the indictment closed with a reference to the record of the process before the provincial court, with the occasional addition of, as is notor, as is manifest be the Hale County of Ross, or words to that effect. The verdict was favourable to the accused, but Mr. Pitcairn is of opinion that her escape was owing to her powerful influence. The inquest, he says, bears all the appearance of a selected or packed jury being very inferior in rank and station of life, contrary to the usual custom. The dittery, or indictment, is the only part of the proceedings that is preserved. Indeed, the reading of it seems to have constituted the whole case of the prosecutor, and the simple denial of the Samin and the Hale points thereof, the whole case for the accused, and after which the jury retired to consider their verdict. The first method, adopted to compass the deaths of the persons who stood in the way of her ambition, was to form figures to represent the young Laird of Fowlis and the young Lady Balnagown, which were to be shot at with elf-arrows, in conformity with the belief that, if these charmed weapons struck the typical bodies, the wounds would be felt in the real bodies, and produce invisibly the desired effect. For the performance of the necessary rites, a meeting of three witches took place in the house of Christian Ross at Canorth, Christian herself being one of them, Lady Fowlis another, and Marjorie McAllister, a hag of peculiar eminence, distinguished also by the name of Lusky Longcart the third. 
having constructed two images of clay they placed them on the north side of the western chamber and losky producing two elf arrows delivered one to christian ross who stood by with it in her hand while with the other lady fowlis shot twice at the figure of lady balnagown and losky three times at that of robert monroe without success in the meantime the images not having been properly compacted crumbled to pieces and their purpose being thus thwarted for the present the unhallowed convocation broke up losky having engaged at the command of lady fowlis to make two other figures Magilly vordicam seems now to have been taken into their councils and by his advice an image in butter of the young laird of Fowlis was placed by the side of the wall in the same western chamber of Canorth, and shot at eight times with an elf arrow by Losky, without effect. This was on the 2nd of July, 1577, and, nothing discouraged by repeated failures, a clay figure of the same person was constructed on the 6th, when the indefatigable Losky discharged the elf arrow twelve times, sometimes reaching the image, but never wounding it. The other two hags stood by, anxiously watching for a successful shot. Christian Ross, having provided three-quarters of fine linen cloth, to be bound about the typical corpse, which was to be interred opposite the gate of the stank of Fowlis, in order to complete the enactment by a full representation of every circumstance which they were desirous of producing as its consequence. The main part of the rite, however, consisted in the infliction of a wound, and this not having been accomplished, they desisted from the vain labour. The more secret arts of witchcraft having failed to effect the desired ends, Lady Fowlis next had to recourse to poison, and numerous were the consultations held to concoct drugs, and devise means for administering them. The same assailants figured as the chief agents in this equally abominable work. A stoop full of poisoned ale was first mixed in the barn of Drumnia, but opportunity not serving for its immediate use, it was kept three nights in the kiln, and the stoop being leaky, the liquor was lost, all but a very small quantity, to prove the strength of which Lady Fowlis caused her servant lad, Donald Mackay, to swallow it. The three confederates were assembled on this occasion, and as the draught did not kill the boy, but only threw him into a state of stupor, Losky Lancart was dismissed, with an injunction to make ain pigful of rancour poison. The obedient hag prepared the potion, and sent it to her patroness, by whom it was delivered to her nurse, Mary Moore, to be conveyed to Angus Leith's house, where the young laird then was, that it might be employed for his destruction. Night was the time chosen for dispatching her on this errand. She broke the vessel, by the way, spilt the liquor, and wishing probably to ascertain the nature of what had been entrusted to her under such circumstances of mystery, tasted it, and paid the forfeit of her curiosity with her life. And what helps to show the deadly qualities of their preparation, the indictment adds that the place where the said pig brack, the girls that grew upon the salmon were so hurched by beyond the nature of other girls that neither cow nor shep ever privet tasted thereof. It were endless to detail all the traffickings and messengers kept scouring the country to collect the required quantity of poison. Losky Lancart was lodged and maintained a whole summer in Christian Ross's house, for the greater convenience of assisting to drug drinks and devise means of administering them. Magilly Vordicum was sent to consult the gypsies about the most effectual way of poisoning the young laird. 
He also purchased a quantity of the powder used to destroy rats, of a merchant in Elgin, and another portion in Tane, and was strictly questioned by Lady Fowlis whether it would suit best to mix the ingredient with eggs, brose, or kale. No fitting opportunity seems to have occurred for administering any of the portions to Robert Munro, but after three interviews, John McFarquhar, Lady Balnagown's cook, was prevailed upon by the present of two ells of grey cloth, a shirt and twelve and fourpence, Scots, to lend them his aid in accomplishing their purpose on his mistress. That young lady being to entertain a party of friends one night at her house at Ardmore, a witch named Catherine Minday carried poison thither to Macfarquhar, who poured it on the principal dish, which was kidneys. This woman remained to witness the effects, and afterwards declared that she it or revolted at the sight, which was the sarest and most cruel that ever Sco saw, seeing the vomit and vexation that was on the young lady Balnagown and her company. The victim of these horrible practices did not die immediately, but contracted a deadly sickness. Querin, says the indictment, Sco remains yet, that is twelve years after taking the poison, incurable. The persons named as privy to the designs of Lady Fowlis were numerous, and included the daughter of a baronet of her own name, whose interest in the matter seems to have been merely that of a connection, or, at most, a clanswoman, and the bribes with which she purchased assistance and secrecy were of the paltriest kind. She provided lodgings in the houses of her adherents, for some whom she wished to have near her, for the better maturing of her schemes. The cook of young Lady Balnagown was bribed, as we have seen, with little more than a shirt and a shilling sterling, the fidelity of Christian Ross was bespoken, by reminding her that she ought not to reveal anything against one who was her lady and mistress. Another of the gang was paid with ain half-furlet of meal. McGilly Vordicum got four ells of linen for his trouble, but besides appropriated six and eightpence Scots of the money given to him to be expended for poison. At other times, however, this person was conciliated with twenty shillings a furlot of meal, five ells of linen, and sixteen shillings. The brother of Lady Fowlis is also said to have promised to Thomas McCain Moore Macallan McEvoch, ain garmouth of clace, suit of clothes, for his services in the same base plot. From a review of this whole case, with others of the same date, it will appear that the crimes of former times were distinguished from those of the present day, not so much by the greater atrocity of any single act, as by the length of time for which they were meditated, and the number of persons admitted to a knowledge of them, without any fear of disclosure. They were the offspring of habitual thought, rather than the effects of a sudden starts of passion. Immediately after the acquittal of Lady Fowlis, her stepson and prosecutor, the seventeenth Baron of Fowlis, was presented at the bar on an accusation in some respects similar of which he also was found not guilty by a jury the majority of whom had sat on the preceding trial in january fifteen eighty eight to nine this gentleman being taken ill sent a servant with his own horse to bring to his assistance marion mcingarach who is characterized as being ain of the most notorious and rank witches in all this realm and who as soon as she entered the house where he lay sick gave him three drinks of water from three stones probably rude stone cups. After a long consultation, she declared there was no hope of recovery unless the principal man of the patient's house should suffer death for him, 
and it was determined after some discussion that this substitute should be George Monroe, eldest son of Catherine Monroe, Lady Fowlis. A plan was next devised for transferring the Arnus Moriendi for the present to George, according to which, in the first place, no person was to have admittance to the house in which Hector lay, until his half-brother came, and on his arrival the sick man with his left hand was to take his visitor by the right, and not speak until spoken to by him. In conformity with these injunctions, several friends who called to inquire for the patient were excluded, and messengers were dispatched both to George Monroe's house and to other parts of the country where he was thought to be engaged in the sports of the chase. Before he could be found, seven expresses had been sent after him, and five days expired. On the intelligence that his brother desired earnestly to see him, he repaired to the place and was received in the form prescribed by the witch, Hector with his hand grasping George's right, and abstaining from speaking until asked how he did, to which he replied, The better that you have come to visit me. And he uttered not a word more, notwithstanding his urgency to obtain an interview. The younger Monroe, having in this manner been brought fairly within the compass of the witch's spells, she that night mustered certain of her accomplices, and having provided spades, repaired to a spot where the two laird's lands meet, and, ain after midnight, digged a grave of the exact length of Hector Monroe, and laid the turf of it carefully aside. They then came home, and Mackingarak gave her assistants instructions concerning the part that each was to perform in the remaining ceremonies. The object, namely, the preservation of Hector's life and the death of George in his stead, being now openly stated, some of those present objected, that if the latter should be cut off suddenly, the hue and cry would be raised, and all their lives would be in danger. They therefore pressed the presiding witch not to make the sacrifice immediately, but to cause it to follow after such an interval as might obviate suspicion, which she accordingly engaged to accomplish, and warranted him to live till the seventeenth day of the ensuing April, at least. This being arranged to the satisfaction of the persons assembled, the sick man was laid in a pair of blankets and carried out to the place where the grave had been prepared. The party was strictly enjoined to be silent, and only Mackingarak and Christian Neal, Hector's foster-mother, were to utter the necessary incantations. Being come to the spot, their living burden was deposited in the grave, the turf being spread over him, and held down with staves. Mackingarak stood by the side of the grave, and Neil, holding the boy, a son of Hector Leith, by the hand, ran the breadth of nine rings, then returned, and demanded, "'Which is your choice?' Thereupon the other replied, "'Mr. Hector, I choose you to live, and your brother George to die for you.' This form of conjuration was twice gone through that night, and on its completion the sick man was lifted, carried home, not one of the company, uttering a word further, and replaced in bed. To the efficacy of this spell was attributed not only the recovery of Hector, but the death of George Monroe, though the latter continued in perfect health, not only for the time warranted by the witch, but for a year longer. He was taken ill in April 1590, and died on the 3rd of June following. Mackingarrick was highly favoured by the gentleman who supposed he owed to her his life. As soon as his health was restored, be the dowlish moyan foresaid, he carried her to the house of his uncle at Kilomodi, where she was entertained with as much obsequious attention as if she had been his spouse, and obtained such pre-eminence in the country that no one durst offend her, though her ostensible character 
was only that of keeper to his sheep. Upon the information of Lady Fowlis, the protector of Mackingarrock, was compelled to present her at Aberdeen, where she was examined before the king, and produced the stones out of which she had made the baron drink. These enchanted cups were delivered to the keeping of the justice clerk, but we are not informed as to the fate of the witch herself. The indictment charged the prisoner that, "'Ye got your health be the devilish means foresaid,' and further it said, "'Ye are indicted for art and part of the cruel, odious, and shameful slaughter of the said George Munro, your brother, by the enchantments and witchcrafts used upon him by you and of your device,' by speaking to him within your bed, taking of him by the right hand, conform to the injunctions given to you by the said Marion Ingarach, in the said month of January, 1589 years, throw the witch enchantments he took and deadly sacknets in the month of April, 1590 yatris, and continue in therein until June thereafter, decease it in the said month of June, being the third day of that instant. End of part 67